All right. Um, hmm. Let me lay this foundation for you guys tonight, and then we'll see where we end up going uh, with this this evening. But I'm really feeling like a drawing and a hunger in this room on a, on a level I haven't felt in a while. So whatever you guys have been doing here, keep doing it, because you're stirring something of a radical nature in a remnant of people that have the capacity to change the world from this room. Uh, God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah 5, 1, he says, so run through the streets of the city of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is in a position where it was, um, it was susceptible to judgment on a radical level. I mean, these guys were really doing some wicked stuff. And God says to Jeremiah, this old covenant revelation, he says, run through the streets of the city and see if you can find one person who loves justice and seeks truth, and I will pardon her. Think about that. From a new covenant lens, we can go back and revisit an old covenant revelation with better clarity, more clarity. So don't ever go back and revisit the Old Testament without bringing the New Testament with you, right? It's the lens that provides clarity for the things that were so confusing, confounding the Old Testament. So from a new covenant lens, we know that truth is a person. It's the person of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth. So when he says, run through the streets of the city, if you find one person who loves justice and seeks the truth... I will pardon her. He's saying, find somebody in this city, one person under an old covenant revelation. Find one person that has an appetite for my presence and I'll release grace over this entire region. That's in the Old Testament. If that is his heart to do in an old covenant mindset, how much more in a new covenant mindset? Is there hunger enough in this room to release grace over this entire state? Your passion for the presence of God, your hunger for the presence of the Lord, understanding the rest and being a child, a son, a daughter of the Father, can position you in such a way where just by virtue of what you allow yourself to be open to in revelation, wisdom and revelation, can begin to pour out upon this entire state an outpouring of the Spirit of God in a way that's directly connected to the passion that you carry. So let's back up all the way to the beginning of the Bible. And this is an important point of, of understanding. For everything I'm going to teach, this is going to be a really important point of foundation. When God begins to create, he creates, starts by creating lifeless environments, dead environments. And then he speaks to the substance of the environment that he has created to produce a life that's meant to live, exist, and thrive in that environment. It's a very simple concept. It's like this. When he makes fish, he talks to the water. He says, let the sea bring forth. And everything that's meant to live and move and have its being in that environment comes forth, starts swimming around. When he wants to make plants and animals, he talks to the earth. He says, let the earth bring forth. And plants and animals are brought forth. The exception to this is when he makes man. When God makes man, he has this dialogue. Let us make man in our image. Now, we know he's not talking to an angel because you're not made in the image and likeness of an angel. So this is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having an internal dialogue. Literally, the very definition of family is the nature and the character and the persona of who God is. Other-centered, self-giving relationship of love having an internal dialogue between Father, Son, and Spirit paralleling the human family of father, mon, mon, uh, father, mother, and child. 
This is why you actually have the image and likeness of God within the families all around you. This is why family, I think, is under attack. If we can like, see the family destroyed, ultimately people get really confused about who God is. So it's really a big deal that you understand how family mirrors the image and likeness of God. God, another centered, self-giving relationship of love, says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So here's the way it works. When he makes fish, he talks to the environment of the water. When he makes plants and animals, he talks to the environment of the earth. When he made man, he spoke to the environment of himself. Now, what does that tell you about where you and I are meant to draw our life from? In him we live and move and have our being. Right? So there's a, there's a sense where he, he takes this uh, mud of earth into his hands and he forms man from the dead soil of earth and the divine breath of his spirit. And man becomes a most unique creature, becomes a living convergence zone between heaven and earth unlike any other being ever created. A divine convergence zone. That's who you are. That's what you are. I'm talking about the deity of humanity, all right? You're not God and God is not you. But you are the mansion, the house that he has built and chosen for himself to live in and dwell in. And he likes where he lives. He takes great pleasure, actually. God in Christ, is, even though he was sorely mistreated by us, took great pleasure in the human experience. Colossians says that it pleased the Father that in Christ the fullness of the Godhead should dwell. In other words, God actually enjoyed his humanity. The incarnation was not an annoyance. It was a pleasure. So much so, and has so much regard for you, that says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He actually enjoyed being human. I think it's kind of cool that even the resurrected, glorified Christ, who has no need of food or sleep, eats every time he shows up. It's interesting. Resurrected Jesus. Hey, Let's fry up some fish. I mean, it's like if he showed up here right now, I'd be like, hey, is there a good steakhouse around? I mean, I I don't know, whatever. It's like he just, he seems to like to eat. Just does. He seems to enjoy uh, just, just being, living, dwelling in you and I. He's got this, this, This way of creating an art that's an expression of himself, and that's who you are. You're the art of God. You are actually, it's God putting himself on display within humanity. We had a lady in our church. um, It's a Presbyterian church, all right? Spirit-filled Presbyterian church. I'm not a Presbyterian guy at all. Why they let me pastor this church is a mystery to me, massive mystery to me. But it's the community church, so people come from all over town. Just like It's the high steeple, and the bells ring out every hour, and it's like, you know... We have the, you know, our, the services are like eight o'clock services, ultra traditional, where we even sing a song in Latin for crying out loud, and then the ultra contemporary service, which might as well be like Bethel, and then and then the the last service is a blended service, which just means nobody's happy. So it's like, 
And the, the lady that ran our welcome cart in this church for seven years wasn't even a Christian, not even a believer. She just came because it was a good place to network. Good networking in our church. So she, she shows up, and then week after week, you know, for months, I'm talking about the presence of God, and she goes, she, goes, she says to me one, one uh, a Thursday night, we have Thursday night service, and she says, she says, Pastor Bill, she says, I gotta talk to you. She goes, I, I can't explain what's going on, but I'm, I'm, having, I'm having like an encounter with God. And I said, well, tell me about it. And she says, well, for seven years, every time people get up in this church and they start talking about God, I make fun of them in my mind because I don't believe anything you guys are saying. And I'm thinking, oh my, you're on our welcome cart. <laughs> like welcoming people to church. And so, so she says, so two weeks ago, after you get done preaching, you're, you're having this time of prayer. And she goes, I didn't come to the front or anything. I just sat. And, and she said, and I thought to myself, God, I don't believe any of this stuff. I don't even know if you're real. But if you're real, I, I, I want to feel your presence. And she said, I sit there, and as I, I'm sitting in the, in the seat, I feel this, what feels like warm oil being poured inside of me, like it's going down the inside of my skin, from all the way down my arms, down my, to, to my feet. She goes, I can feel all inside of me like warm oil. And she goes, and then I think to myself, man, she's a highly educated woman. So much to unlearn, right? She says... <laughs> She says, I think maybe this is a psychosomatic suggestion brought upon by a personal sense of like, oh, I'm, I'm going to suggest this to myself, so I'm responding, my body's responding to the mental suggestion that I just gave myself, right? <laughs> wow. So, so she says, okay, so I'm thinking, okay, so then I got to like do something else. She goes, well, I've never had a vision, God, so would you show me something? Like, I want to see you. She says, behind like my... Like on the back of my eyelids, I feel like he draws on the back of my eyelids and it looks like a golden picture frame, but it's flaming. And in the middle is standard Western blue-eyed, you know, white Jesus. In other words, as I've recognized in my whole life, the way that we paint them here in America, right? And, and she says, and suddenly, she says, oh, I recognize. And she says, I think he put it, that on display for me so that I would recognize, oh, Jesus is showing himself to me. So he's going to show himself to me in a way that's familiar to me, right? She says, I put, suddenly I see him. He's like right there in front of me. And then his face morphs into another nationality, another person, another person, another person. And just keeps like morphing and cycling. She says, it's like going through the nations of the world. And suddenly I have this immediate download where I feel like God's saying, I've been putting myself on display in front of you your entire life and you've refused to see me. She goes, so in the last two weeks now, I can't, I can't like look at a person without being overwhelmed by the presence of God. Like anybody. So, yeah, so it gets cooler. She goes, now here's the crazy part to me. She goes, I've had fibromyalgia and MS. I've been in chronic pain for years, like more than a decade. I've, I've walked with pain every day. She goes, after that experience, I got up to walk away, and she says I had no pain. She goes, so the last couple of weeks, I've gone to the doctor and I've done various tests, and they can't find any, any signs or symptoms of fibromyalgia or MS at all. She goes, apparently I'm totally healed. just because she dared to invite herself into an encounter with God just sitting in a seat. See, you get to choose your response to the presence of God. Do you know that? 
God shows up, you don't automatically go into autopilot and everything happens perfectly. The Bible is one gigantic record of really bad responses to the presence of God. I mean, one after another, after another, after another. As a matter of fact, in, in John chapter 16, John chapter 15, Jesus says, maybe talk about this tomorrow morning, but John chapter 15, Jesus says, I'm speaking to you so that my joy would remain in you and your joy might be full. And in John 16, he goes on to say, and as I'm talking, sorrow is filling your heart. See, he's, he's released the purpose of the word to release joy to you, but their response is sorrow because they have a filter of expectation and even the word of God, the most powerful force in the universe, is received in a way that it gets twisted and the emotional response is actually wrong because you get to choose how you respond to the word of the Lord. That's why you can be standing in a, in a service and being overcome by the presence of God and the person standing next to you is going, man, when's this gonna be done? Because the same sun that melts ice hardens clay. So, back to Adam. God and Adam have this relationship. Adam and Eve come about, and they experience God uh, with their senses, believe it or not. I mean, it talks about they heard God walking, the sound of God. And King James actually says the voice of the Lord walking through the garden in the cool of the day. In other words, they experienced God with their senses. They were actually able as people, as human beings, to have a relationship with God. God interacted with their physical senses. You understand that the senses that you have were, were made for the First and foremost, everything about you is made for communion with God, including your senses. This will matter to some of you as time goes on because you begin to recognize that God's actually speaking to you in ways that just aren't English. More than just our normal bits of language. When you start to recognize and realize this, you'll start to, to, to basically allow your senses permission again to experience and, and, and interact with the presence of the Lord. Um, yeah, some people, some people will have like certain physical responses to the presence of God. And uh, it's not that God just showed up and just, wow, that's just gonna be the way, no, it's, there comes a point in time where you make a personal, intentional decision to say, God, fill all of me with all of you and awaken every part of me that was meant to interact with you aligned back into that awareness where they can, it can respond to your voice. So I'm not just listening with my ears. I'm not even just listening with my spirit. David said this when he said, I entered the presence of the Lord in the temple. He says, my heart and my flesh long for you. In other words, you can get to a place in your walk with God where you actually physically have an appetite for him. So Adam and Eve are enjoying the presence of the Lord and then something goes wrong. A serpent comes to Eve and says, see this tree of the knowledge of good and evil over, evil over here? If you eat of this tree, you can be like God. Well, whose image and likeness was she made in? They were made in the image and likeness of God. So the serpent tries to convince Adam and Eve that they actually don't have what they actually do have. It's often said that the original sin is that man wanted to be like God. I'm not sure where we got that theology. The original sin is that we believed the lie that said we were not. It was a lie suggested to us that we were not what we actually 
are. So you eat of this and you can be like God. Wait a minute, they were already made in the image and likeness of God, and so now this is confusing. So they suddenly do something that they were never meant to do, and that is they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil didn't create evil. It only exposed the eating of it, the consuming of it, only exposed something that man was never actually meant to be an expert in. Didn't suddenly make evil happen. It was the knowledge of good and evil. There was always a choice, but man was never meant to be threatened by evil. Man was never meant to be threatened by darkness. Romans 16, 19 says, be excellent in what is good and be innocent of evil. In other words, be so focused and fixated on the presence of God that evil loses its ability to impress you. Sin loses its ability to lie to you and evil loses its ability to impress you. Because when something loses its authority, it also loses its attraction. So, man eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To this day, for whatever reason, 2,000 years even after the cross, we've spent generations making God famous for judgment when he's supposed to be famous for love. Churches, by and large, are still fruit stands. Hey, you want to know what good and evil is? We do. We got it. We know it. You don't believe this? Get a room full of people together. Give them a moral question, and they'll turn to the most religious person in the room to see what they think. Because we've convinced the world that we have a corner market on what's right and wrong and what's good and evil. When it was something we were never supposed to be fixated on. Ever. I don't often talk about this in service. Let me just do it. Let me do this tonight. For some reason, um, I feel like I, I need to go here. This is so highly controversial, what I'm about to say. But let me see if I say it right. I've started telling my kids... I noticed this in Texas. In Texas, we were very dogmatic about black and white, right and wrong, right? Good and evil. There were things that were good, and there were things that were not good. There were things that were righteous, and there were things that were sin. And it was typically whatever our culture said was, you know, we had, we had our, our favorite, you know, sins over here, and we put that in the bad column. And we completely abstained and shunned from those things. But anything in the good column, I realized that Christians would go overboard on the things in the good column to the point where the things in the good column would actually become just as detrimental as anything in the bad column. And I realized that we had started basically uh, 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 dividing things into right and wrong. So I started telling my kids some time ago. I said, whoa, time out. Let's stop talking about whether this is right or this is wrong. Now, some things are right, some things are wrong. But that's not what I wanted to get them to. I wanted to get them to a higher thought. And I said, I want you to think of this. I want you to ask yourself this question. Does this serve me? Or by laying hold of this in my life, will I end up serving it? Paul says in two places, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. Another place he says, all things are permissible, but I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, just because you have the freedom to do a thing doesn't mean it's to be done. And wisdom teaches you what's beneficial. 
And so sometimes in grace and freedom, people will lay hold of things in their lives and apply them to their lives in such a way that it creates a bondage. And now in your freedom, you've gone into bondage again because for whatever reason, you laid hold of something that you were, you were, you had the freedom to choose. No angel's going to come down and take your hand away. No angel's going to come down and shut your computer off. No angel's going to come down and take that out of you. Take this drink away. Take that drug away. Take nobody, nobody's going to cut. God's not going to show up and say, no, don't do that. See, I ask this question to people. I say, if, if you had the freedom or the right, if you had the power to keep people from hurting each other, would you do it? Would you keep people from inflicting pain on one another? Would you keep people from making choices that are destructive? And I think a lot of times from a good perspective, from a good heart and a good motivation, most people would go, yes, I would keep people from hurting each other. That's why we have laws. That's why we have police. That's why we have these things to try to keep people in. Here's the thing though. God doesn't do that. On the cross, God didn't take away your ability to say no. He didn't take away your ability to inflict pain upon yourselves and upon other people. He actually still gave you and I the choice because he's less interested in controlling you and more interested in interacting with you by his spirit to teach you how to manage your freedom. And we don't manage our freedom by putting things in a right category and a wrong category. We manage our freedom by listening to the Holy Spirit and walking out what he says. And in that place, you look at something that even in Texas might be totally fine to do because it's in the right category and God's like, yeah, you need to not do that anymore. You need to lay that down. See, God is teaching us to, to, to walk according to his voice and move with him. I think a lot of people have been going through a deconstruction of sorts. So maybe there was a time in your life where you just like prayed and fasted and went after things in God and did 24-7 prayer, you know, 40-day fast and did all this stuff to try to get closer and closer to God. And then maybe one day you realized, oh my goodness, I'm on a hamster wheel of religious works and now I got to get off of this thing. And all of a sudden you got the message of grace. And grace told you what Christ had already done and the finished work of the cross became a reality maybe to you. And suddenly you just let go of all of that stuff and you started looking down on anybody else who was doing that and, and you, became, you became kind of a grace Pharisee, right? So, which is, is fine. That's another part of your journey. That's okay. I'm talking totally different than I, I, I you, you go listen to any of my recordings. I'm saying stuff tonight I've never said publicly, all right? So, <clears throat> Very weird for me. I'm kind of having fun here. So, so you, like, you, you have this like moment of clarity where you're like, I'm out of that. I'm done with that forever and for good. I don't have to do that anymore because I'm already accepted by God. And then all of a sudden God goes, good, fast. What? What? I, I, I put that in the religious category. Stop categorizing things and listen for my voice. It's only religious if it's not his idea. And one of the amazing things about God is that he'll take a person who's like laid something down, like saying prayer and fasting, like like 24-7, like all night vigils and night watches and stuff like that, going after things. And, And he'll take a person who's laid that down just to enter into the rest of just being a child of God. And then one day God will look at you and say, you know what, I'm calling you to a fast. And, and what we end up doing a lot of times is we step back into a religious mindset and we look around and saying, hey, God's calling me to a fast. And somebody says, I don't feel that. And you're thinking, huh, something must be wrong here. Why is he only talking to me? And then you find two or three people and God's talking to them about it. 
but not talking to the rest of the church. And so that becomes a division. God will actually speak to a small group of people to do something. They're supposed to pursue and go after something that the rest of the church gets for free. There's times where God will call you to sacrifice to do something and from a place of, of connection with his heart and hearing his voice, you'll be drawn into that place of doing something that you go after something that everybody else gets for free. It's, it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two where Jesus appears to over 500 people and then says, go to Jerusalem, wait till you, you're filled with power from on high and 120 say, okay, what happened to the other 400? I don't know, maybe they had jobs, maybe they had kids, maybe they had obligations to employers, maybe they you know, had things that they had to honor or whatever, maybe they couldn't be there. So the 120 go into an upper room for 10 days, takes them 10 days to come into unity, that's the point. 10 days for one church of 120 people to come into that level of unity where the Holy Spirit honored their unity. I don't know, maybe there was a fist fight or two, maybe there was you know, a lot of hugging and crying. You know, you put 120 Christians together in a room for 10 days not knowing what to expect. I imagine one disciple turns to another and goes, you know, I never liked you. It maybe happened. You never know. But for whatever reason, it took 10 days to get their issues out to where they finally came to a place of unity and the Holy Spirit falls upon the room. And here's the thing. What they paid a price for, the entire body of Christ down to us today gets for free. And you want to see revival come into a community. It takes a few of you who hear the voice to do something, to not judge the ones who don't hear. For whatever reason, not that you're more special than the person next to you, but God may say something to you that he doesn't require of somebody else. And see, religion makes us all want to have the exact same commands and the exact same requirements. Yet God personally will ask you to do something where you pay a price for something that everybody else gets for free. Listen, never leave a meeting and go to a person who wasn't there. Never leave a meeting and say, oh, you missed it. Hey, if there was something worth missing and you got it, give it away. It's the 11th hour worker principle where the person that shows up at the last minute gets the exact same wages as the person that was there from the beginning of the day. And revival will come and be sustained in a community when you're willing to pay a price for what everybody else gets for free and you're okay with that. So Adam and Eve have this interaction with the serpent. He says, you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. They eat of the tree and suddenly, immediately, they turn and judge one another. It's the first time we ever see preference. In other words, prior to that, God looks at Adam, made in his image and likeness, the creator sees his own creation and decides to inspire and impart that nature of creativity in Adam and says to Adam, name the animals. Now, Hebrew culture, to name means to assign nature to. So Adam is given creative license and ability to assign nature to the world that he lives in. It's not just giving things something to be called. He's saying, this is who you are, and this is who you are, and this is who you are. And the minute that Adam eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the death that he experiences is that he suddenly does not even know who he is anymore. 
which is why God shows up and asks two questions. First question is, Adam, where are you? Which is a fascinating question because, hey, if God can't find you, you know you're lost, right? (laughs) But he's not asking that question for his benefit. He's trying to communicate something to Adam. Adam, you understand? You've lost yourself. You've lost yourself. There's one of the Hebrew words for sin is the Hebrew word chatah, chatah, which means to lose yourself. In other words, I don't even know who I am, so I'm acting out an identity contrary to the reality of who I am right now. The next question God asks is a fascinating one because it uses the word naked, so we never preach about it. He says, who told you you were naked. And the word naked is an interesting word. It just simply means I'm lacking. I'm lacking in such a way that I am requiring, I, I, I have, nobody else is responsible for this. I have to fill up in myself what I'm lacking. But I need something. I'm missing something. I'm lacking in something. And uh, I mean, listen, God is El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. And in Psalm, uh, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's Old Testament. In that place, I'm surrendered to the lordship of God. I recognize I'm lacking in nothing. Paul says in the New Testament, under the new covenant, in the finished work, he says, hey, I know how to, to, to be abased and how to abound. I can have a lot and have a little. It's okay. I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm complete and lacking in nothing. It's amazing. So he recognizes in the presence of God there is no lack, even though he's writing that while he's in prison and in chains. It's fascinating because he's, he's lacking in nothing. And so when God shows up and says, Adam, who told you you were naked? This is the nature of the question. Who convinced you you were lacking in something? Somebody convinced you you were lacking. And see, when he shows up, he sees that now they are, well, first off, they're hiding. Why? Why were they hiding from God? Well, they had a right to be afraid of him because they had disobeyed him. Except for this, God had never done anything to create like pain or affliction or he had never done anything to be afraid of before. There was no precedent for, for them to hide from God. Why were they hiding? This is the danger of sin. Is that sin warps your perception of the goodness of God. The minute that they sinned and became confused about their own identity, their first response was to cover themselves, judge one another, introduce guilt and shame, and hide from a God they didn't need to be afraid of. Because see, sin, sin will change your mind about God, but it doesn't change God's mind about you. That's the danger of sin. It changes, it doesn't change your relationship with God, it just changes your relationship with the devil. It introduces a whole new dynamic because you become the slave of the one you obey. And now you're walking in a level of obedience to something contrary to the will of God, which confuses us and confounds us even further. People say all the time, well, God is holy and he can't look on sin. It's popular Presbyterian doctrine. God is holy and he can't look on sin. Not remotely true. Where do we get that idea? If God can't look on sin, he would have never gone looking for Adam and Eve when they fell. See, I know what that's trying to communicate. It's trying to communicate the awfulness of sin, but subconsciously it communicates that sin is stronger than the holiness of God. 
as if God has to protect his holiness from the defilement of sin. The reality is in the light of the gaze of God, your sin can't even stand. It's not even an issue. It's like a paper chain. It's not even, it's, there's no strength to it. It doesn't even exist. It's an illusion that creates a distance and separation that God doesn't even recognize, but it creates an enmity in your mind. So like in Colossians 1, it says that you and I at one time, we were enemies of God. The next line is, in our mind. Not in his mind, in ours. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. The minute that they walked out of harmony and out of alignment with the heart and the will of God, their mind was warped about the goodness of God. There's two Hebrew words for, the, for fear. And it's important that we know them. Uh, because otherwise we, we have a hard time distinguishing the fear of the Lord and the fear, fear of punishment. The two Hebrew words for fear, one of them is the word pachad. And the word pachad just simply means a fear whose objects are imagined. In other words, nothing has happened yet, but I'm afraid that it might, and so I have to think of the scenario, the worst case scenario, and prepare for that. So it's a fear of punishment that actually hasn't taken place. It's a fear of something horrible happening. It's like this foreboding sense of, what, oh, God might do this to me, or God might do that. Oh, no. And so I have this fear of something that actually hasn't happened yet, so I have to make it up in my head. That's pachad. The other word is the word yirah, also translated in English as fear. And the word yirah simply means a present tense encounter with more power, might, glory, majesty, or wealth than I've ever experienced before. Leaves me jaw-dropped, just completely dumbfounded at what I'm experiencing. But it's happening right now. I don't even have to imagine it. It's present tense. It's right now. You know the famous verse that people love to quote, Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is not the word pachad. It's the word yurah, which means the present tense encounter with the glory of God. I don't have to imagine it. It's happening right now. That is the birthplace of wisdom. In that present tense encounter with the glory of God, you begin to really realize something, and that is his glory and his goodness are synonymous. They're one and the same. Moses goes to the mountain, and he says to God, show me your glory. What an audacious request. You know what God's response to that was? I'm going to make all of my goodness to pass before you. So the glory and the goodness of God are one and the same. So when we sin, it warps our perception of this good God. And at best, we enter into an unhealthy pachad, a fear of God, that causes us to expect punishment, and we end up hiding from the very God that wants to separate us from that, that, that sense of sin. I had a guy one time comes to me and says, um, I was preaching this radical message on grace. I'm, I just finished a book. It'll be out in June. My first solo book called Reckless Grace. Anyway, um, and it'll probably... Brand me a heretic, I'm sure. Anyway, um, so I had this guy comes to me and he says, he says, Bill, I struggle. I'm struggling with the sin in my life. And I have this, oh, I have this issue. And uh, it's just, a, it's a habit and I can't, I just can't deal with it. And so I had been reading in John chapter 20 and verse 23, um, where Jesus resurrects from the dead. And, and after the resurrection, he appears to the disciples and he breathes on and goes, receive the Holy Spirit. Two times in the Bible, by the way, God breathes on man. One in Genesis 1.26 and the other one after the resurrection right there. 
where at the cross, resurrection restored us to our original intent. The resurrection validates our righteousness, all those beautiful things. So he breathes on the church. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. Next verse. As the Father sent me, I send you. Whoever sends you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sends you retain, they are retained. We ignore that verse because it sounds way too Catholic for some people. And so I was preaching in a way that was like inviting people to, let's just pretend that Jesus wasn't joking. What if that's actually true? What if the final commandment that he gave the disciples was, was, was the mandate and the authority to actually release his grace on the world as if to say, hey, if this world doesn't know it's forgiven, it's not my fault. I've poured out, I've poured out all the grace this world will ever need in, in one drop of my blood, and I've let the river of that loose, and now it's up to you to let the world know how forgiven it is. Okay, so... This guy comes up to me and he says, I'm struggling with this issue and I can't, I can't deal with it. And I looked at him, I, just, I grabbed him by the shirt and I looked him eye to eye, pulled him really close and I said, I speak and release the grace of God over you and I declare over you that sin has no more chain in your life and won't have any dominion over you anymore and you have grace. And if you can't stand on the grace of God, you can stand on the grace that I'm releasing over you right now. If you, can't, you don't have a relationship with God because you're fearful of this punishment, I'm telling you voice to voice right now, if Jesus was standing right here, he'd look at you and he'd release grace over you and say, I forgive you. Now go and sin no more. In other words, be released from the chain of the bondage of sin that's got a hook in your heart. I take that out right now and I tell you, you can't out the grace of God. And his eyes get all big like this and he just steps back. I said, you believe me? And he goes, I want to. And I said, well, Lord, help his unbelief. And then he back down on the floor. So, I thought it was nice, and I left, and I walked away, and went on to somebody else. And I get a, a call from him eh, a couple of months later. And Bill, I got to tell you what happened to me. Yeah, he says, well, I've been prayed for. I've had like oil dumped over me, a deliverance, all these different things. Went through all this inner healing and stuff. And he says, and I, I, I would stay clean for a little while. I'd stay fine for a little while, and then all of a sudden, I returned back to the same issue. Just became it was just a habit for me. He says, when you said that, I, I got it from the, the floor, and I thought, that's it. It's broken off. And he said, and I was fine for about three days. And then suddenly, I find myself under this, mount, this weight of temptation, and I find myself back in the same sin. And he says, and as I'm in the middle of that, he says, I heard the voice of God speak to my heart and said this, do you believe you're forgiven now? And he said, my response is, well, of course not. Look what I'm doing. And he says, this is what I hear God say to me. My sin, or my grace, can clean you up faster than you can mess yourself up. And he said, when I realized that the grace and the righteousness of God was the greater strength he says, suddenly, both the desire and the habit was broken off of my life. And he said, and I sat there just totally, just feeling this overwhelming sense of clean. My grace can clean you faster than your sin can mess you up. And he goes, so now it's been a couple of months. He says, Bill, I'm walking free. He said, sin has no power in my life anymore. It's crazy. It's like... It's like I've, I've, lost, I've lost the ability to even like generate the desire for it. Like I would have to be intentional. And you can. You can intentionally generate the desire and appetite for just about anything. So you took a revelation of the grace of God. 
poured out upon a person to realize they could walk completely free from the thing that they had struggled with their entire life. Start to believe this, it'll change your life. I'm telling you. Some of you like, even as believers dealing with issues, you come to church because you feel good and you get, you know, you get some freedom and then you go away and you wonder, why do I still keep struggling in my mind? Why do I still keep struggling in my flesh? And so, saying, look, begin to believe in the power of the grace of God, that the grace of God actually has the power to outrun and overpower any sin that you try to introduce into your life. I think people are afraid that if they actually believe that, that they would have the freedom and the license to go out and sin. Like, oh my goodness, Bill, you're giving away licenses to sin. Okay, trust me when I say I would never give away a license to sin. I would sell those. (laughs) Do you know how much money you can make off that? I mean, if you act, license, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't, come on, I'm out. giving away licenses. I got 10 licenses for this week. Going to the highest bidder. Come on. Actually, it's been done. It was over in Europe and it was called Indulgences and it built a lot of churches. It's true. It's been done. (laughs) Capitalist. (laughs) Giving away license to sin. I said, the guy says to me, I'm afraid you're giving away licenses to sin. I said, trust me. I know my congregation. They don't need a license. They've been sitting just fine on their own without one, right? The more I would preach about sin, the more people would struggle with it. The more I would draw people's attention to sin, the more they would struggle with the very thing I draw their attention to. I decided to stop preaching about sin, start telling people that they were righteous, start telling people they were holy, pure, righteous. And Well, that's what Jesus did. He said, be holy for your father is holy. Be perfect for your father is perfect. He wasn't, he wasn't giving you an assignment to become something. He doesn't say become perfect. He said be. He was giving you a prophetic declaration of your present identity from heaven's perspective. He was telling you who you are. Adam and Eve lose themselves. They lose their identity. They lose a sense of who they are. You know, and God in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wants to restore us to this revelation of who we actually are. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. In Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. Have been, past tense, already done. It's the preaching of the good news of the gospel is telling you what's already been done. In other words, you're more complete than you know. See, our entire life, I mean, I think our, our entire existence, I was saying this to somebody today, I said, I mean, every, every moment of our existence, every human story is the story of leaving and returning home. And to some level, in some way, and somehow, for whatever reason, people go out and they enter into the hog pen of life doesn't mean that they're not a son anymore. They may actually face consequences because of the choices that they make. Sin will lead you into a place where you face consequences, but never underestimate the educational value of consequences. <laughs> That's what I tell my kids all the time. You got that ticket? No, I'm not going to pay it. Never underestimate the educational value of consequences. It's okay. 
there's something about this where God is taking us on a journey. And the beautiful story of the father and the son and the prodigal son story is that the father lets the son take his journey without any condemnation because he knows there's an experience to be had in that hog pen that will teach him something he would have never learned at home. And so the son never stops being a son except in his own mind. And now in that hog pen, this this Jewish boy in a hog pen. Think about that. How offensive, Jesus, do you have to make this story for these people? And this guy can't conceive of being a son anymore. All he can think of is being a servant. That's the best he can think of himself. But nonetheless, he's going to come back to his father. And before he can even get his repentant speech out of his mouth, the father's got the ring and the robe, and he restores his son. He strike up the music, let's crank up the barbecue, and he wants, that's the whole thing is the father just wants to dance with his kids. That's it. See, everything in the story, we always like, we call, we call it the prodigal son story. Jesus never said, here's the story of the prodigal son. He never said, we did that. So by virtue of our tradition, we draw an attention to the activity of the son because that's what we most identify with. But the story is not about the prodigal son. It's about the heart of the father. It's about the heart of a good father who just wants to dance with his kids who don't know that he's good anymore because they've sinned themselves so deeply into confusion that they can't even conceive that the father could bring them back. And so they come in as a servant. And how many people come in in church every week purely like dragging their carcass into church like, I'm no more worthy to be called your son. I'm just going to serve. And the father Oh my goodness, I love it when I, meet, when I meet a pastor who carries a father's heart. So cool. So I meet Tim tonight, and I look at him, and I said, this is, the, this is a guy, this, this is my assessment. I have a little litmus test for pastors. <laughs> this is my test. I'm thinking, this is the kind of guy who would see, see a, a, a servant-minded person coming a long way off and run to them and tell them that they're a son before they've even gotten their I'm sorry out of my mouth. Just feel like he's just that kind of guy. Like you don't have to be perfect in your own mind to serve with this guy. I like that. That's ah, cool. That's very cool to me. The father just wants to dance with his son, he just wants to enjoy his kids. And the story goes tragic when the guy who did it all right in his own mind, in his own disciplined self-righteousness, in his own judgmental religiosity, he is the only one in the story that doesn't dance with the father. I don't mind letting people take their journey without condemnation. Because even if you stay home and you never dance with the father, you miss the whole point. If you have to run out and, and, and do the hog pen thing for a while and you actually live through it, you know what you'll come to a revelation of? God will peel the judgment religiosity off of you to the point where you have no choice but just to rest in his grace and goodness. And you'll get a little jig in your step and you'll actually start dancing with the father again. That's all the father wants. He just wants to dance with his kids. He wants to enjoy his kids. He wants his family back. I love that. Some of you got kids that are out in the hog pen of life or whatever, and you're like, oh, the devil's got my kids. Well, 
No, he doesn't. He's a thief. How long does a thief have something in his possession before it legally becomes his? Never. Never becomes his. Devil doesn't own anything. Doesn't own your kids. They belong to God. They belong to God. I'm giving you a lot of insider information tonight. These are the conversations I have with people that are really close friends of mine, and we just met. This is very rare. About eight years ago, I was in the middle of of a meeting, and I had said, I've been praying, God, I... I want to connect with people's hearts in the room. I don't just want to come up and like trot out some shtick or some, something you know, that I say the same everywhere. I don't want to do that. I want to connect with people's hearts in the room. I want to answer questions that people are asking. And I got up, and in the middle of a, a meeting, I started hearing questions. And this is something I don't talk about a lot. But I started hearing questions. started hitting my heart. And, and, and the crazy thing is, is when I acknowledged the question was actually there, right in the middle of my message, right in the middle of my notes, boom, a question hits. And suddenly, I get an answer. And I'd start speaking the answer out. And then another question. And then another answer. And then another question, another answer. And so without even realizing it, from that point until this, and even happening tonight, almost every service that I do essentially is a Q&A session. And so tonight, if you're thinking, oh my goodness, he's answered a question that was on my heart. Trust me when I say, God knows the questions you're asking. For some of you, he wants to answer your questions, but for others of you, he wants to question your answers. Because to journey is to question, and he wants to bring you on a journey of knowing his heart even more. 